Greetings, everyone. In 2005, the most costly natural disaster ever to impact the United States up to that time resulted from Hurricane Katrina, which is estimated to have caused over 1,800 fatalities and $125 billion in damage. In 2017, another hurricane called Harvey made landfall in Louisiana and Texas caused another $125 billion in damage, although the loss of life was less than that of Katrina. In 2019, a pandemic that began in China swept through much of the world. Although figures are disputed, more than 6 million deaths have been blamed on the coronavirus the pandemic. More than a million of these deaths about one out of six are said to have occurred in the United States. What is not uncertain, or you might say what is certain, is that as we approach the end of this age, we can expect to see even more and greater calamities befall our nation and other peoples. All nations eventually are going to be affected, but especially the peoples of certain countries, the English-speaking nations, Great Britain, the United States, sister nations, are especially going to be affected by some of the calamities that will be occurring or are prophesied to occur in the future as we come toward the end of this age. Deuteronomy 28 and other scriptures, we find a prophecy of a succession of curses and disasters that will befall our nations if we persist in rebellion against God, including disease epidemics, famine, and falling prey to our enemies. As disaster and calamity overtake our peoples and the peoples of this world, as Scripture prophesies, our metal is going to be tested. We will face specific challenges. Today's sermon, I want to discuss some of those challenges. We'll begin with the challenge of maintaining a godly perspective in the face of calamity. As disasters and calamities occur, many will begin to question God and blame God for what's happening. Why, will they ask, does God allow such things to happen? Does God really exist? And if so, why does he intervene? We may ask the same questions. In fact, we should ask those questions, but in asking the questions, we need to make sure that we look to the right source for the answers. Temptation will be to survey the evil around us and conclude that either God does not exist or that God does not care, and hence lose faith. The scripture points the way to the answers to such questions. First, God does exist. Because if he did not exist, nothing else would exist. We read in Romans 1, beginning with verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness, because what may be known of God is manifest in them, or maybe better translated would be revealed to them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, 
being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. In other words, we can conclude from the creation itself that there is a God, that God exists. The evidence that God exists is imprinted unmistakably in his creation. The predilection among scientists of our age generally has been to dismiss or willfully reject the idea of God. But despite this, the more we learn of the universe and of all of creation, the more certain it is that the creation demands a creator. Leading astrophysicist Fred Hoyle who used to be an atheist before his death, changed his mind and claimed to be an agnostic. He had done a significant amount of research into the biology of life, how it, uh, how life might have come to exist. With his colleague Chandra Rikwamasing, he calculated that the chance of all the functional proteins necessary for life forming by chance is one in one place, I should say, is one in ten to the forty thousandth in power, which he describes as such an outrageously small probability that it could not be faced if the whole universe consisted of organic soup. Organic soup is something that, as people have speculated, may have led to life developing by spontaneous generation out of ponds of scum or or various uh, types of uh, chemicals in pools of water, but that uh, idea is pretty, has pretty much been debunked, and as we just saw, it is highly improbable, in fact, virtually impossible. These authors also concluded, and I'm, I'm quoting, Darwinian evolution is most unlikely to get even one polypeptide right, polypeptide is a protein, let alone the thousands on which living cells depend for their survival, end quote. They go on to say, quote, the probability of life originating at random is so utterly minuscule as to make the random concept absurd. For life to have, they go on to say, for life to, origi to have originated on Earth, it would have been necessary that quite explicit instructions should have been provided for its assembly. The theory that life was assembled by an intelligence, they say, is vastly more probable than the alternative of being the correct explanation. Indeed, such a theory is so obvious that one wonders why it is not widely accepted as being self-evident. The reasons are psychological rather than scientific, end quote. There are many lines of evidence pointing similarly to the existence of God. They include the very nature of the universe and its elementary particles. Quell says, also quoting from an article he wrote, a common sense interpretation of the facts suggests that a super intellect has monkeyed with physics as well as with chemistry and biology and that there are no blind forces worth speaking about in nature. The numbers one calculates from the facts seem to me so overwhelming as to, to put the conclusion almost beyond question. End quote. 
the existence of the elements necessary for life, such as carbon and oxygen, and their proportions in the universe and on the Earth, the ratio of proton to electron mass, the relative strength of the four fundamental forces, the existence of protein and DNA, and their roles in physical life, the balance between the gravitational force and electromagnetic force in stars, the original low entropy state required for the existence of the physical universe, the balance between the universe's expansion and contraction, the balance between centrifugal force and gravitational force, and a host of other natural phenomena. Various scientists have told us all point inexorably toward intelligent, purposeful design inherent in the, phys in the physical creation. Many leading scientists have admitted as much, despite their reluctance to do so. For example, Alan Sandage, one of the most influential astronomers of the 20th century, has said, and he once claimed to be an atheist, he changed his mind later and professed faith in Christ, but he, uh, he said, quoting, We can't understand the universe in any clear way without the supernatural, end of quote. And there are many others I could quote as well. What people don't want to acknowledge, even many who claim to believe in God, however, is that the God who created the universe also rules his creation. And that includes, and you might say especially, includes mankind. Ruling implies rules and judgment and punishment when the rules are broken. And we find a theme to that effect throughout the Bible. For example, let's take a look at Romans chapter 1 again. This time beginning with verse 23. It says, although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools, and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man, and birds, and forfeited animals, and creeping things. Therefore God also gave them up to uncleanness in the lust of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves, who exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worshipped and served the creature more than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to vile passions, for even their women exchanged the natural use for what is against nature. Likewise, also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust for one another men with men committing what is shameful and receiving in themselves the penalty for their error that which was due. And even as they did not like to retain God in their in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting, being filled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness. They are whispers, backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to 
parents, undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful. Now we might stop and think about the things that were just said here and ask ourselves if this doesn't look a lot like the present time that we're living in, our present age, more so than previous generations. In other words, the world is not getting better morally and spiritually, it's getting worse and more and more like what we just read being described. But evil has all existed, always existed on the earth since the creation of mankind. But at the end of this age, it's prophesied that it will get worse than in previous times. Going on in chapter 2 of Romans, Paul says, Therefore you are inexcusable, O man, whoever you are who judge, for in whatever you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things, but we know that the judgment of God is according to truth against those who practice such things. And do you think this, O man, you who judge those practicing such things and doing the same, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you despise the riches of his goodness, forbearance, and long-suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance, but in accordance with your hardness and your impenitent heart, you are treasuring up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to each one according to his deeds. So we're told very clearly here in a number of other places in Scripture in various ways that God is judging us and he will render to us according to our deeds. It doesn't mean that he's not merciful, but it does mean that we are being judged and we will have be held accountable. Now, God has blessed the United States and our English-speaking sister peoples in the past 200 years as no nations in history have been blessed because of the faithfulness, not of ourselves, but of the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, or Israel. God made promises to them concerning their descendants. And these promises, many of them were to be fulfilled in the end times, the end of this age. And their descendants in the end of the age were to be given extraordinary blessings involving national wealth and influence. God is the source of the blessings we've been given, and we have been blessed, these nations above all others, and our sister nations. We've been blessed above all others, not only in modern times, but in all of history. And many of the things that we've seen occur, the increase in knowledge, increased communications, and so forth, were all prophesied to occur in this age in the scriptures. And it is because of the righteousness of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that these blessings have come down to us. But just as surely as God has given us these remarkable and unheard of blessings, he can take them away. And in fact, he has promised to do so. He promised to do so if we rejected his laws and commandments and were disobedient and, and unfaithful to covenant that God made with Israel. And so God is promised to remove those blessings because of our gross wickedness and rejection of him and his law. 
people of ancient Israel had been chosen by God as descendants of Abraham as his covenant people. And they were to be an example, a model nation for other nations to learn from and to emulate if they did what was right. But they forsook God and persistently rebelled against his laws, though he warned them of the consequences of faithlessness. Few realize that the modern nations of Great Britain, the United States, and their sister nations, largely descended from Anglo-Saxon or related forebears, are in fact descendants of the so-called lost tribes of Israel, who migrated westward after they were taken into captivity by the Assyrians in the 8th century BC, and wound up eventually in the British Isles, and from there spread out to other parts of the world including what became the United States. Many of the prophecies of the Bible addressed to Israel apply in the end times to the people descended from the ancient Israelites who have been blessed as we have, as God promised Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob through the prophet Hosea. And there, by the way, many of these prophecies throughout the scriptures, especially in the Old Testament, most prophecies Many of them are specifically for our age, partially for ancient times, but often more specifically for our age. Through the prophet Hosea, for example, God speaks to our people today. And God promised to spring punishment on our peoples because we have forgotten God. And our worship, such as it is, is impure and often directed toward idols, just as it was in ancient Israel who also claimed to worship God, but they blended that worship with idolatry and idolatrous customs and practices. Through the prophet Hosea, speaking of Israel, God said, For she did not know that I gave her grain, new wine, and oil, and multiplied silver and gold. Notice it says, She did not know that I gave her the grain, the new wine, the oil, the produce of the fields, and the petroleum reserves that actually we even now perhaps have more petroleum reserves than any other place on the earth in the United States, but we're not using it. We're running out of uh, petroleum energy because of government policies, but those blessings and gifts are from God. The gold and the silver, the wealth that we've had, the national wealth, came from God. But it says these things of these things he's speaking of, it says they prepared these for Baal or Baal, the false god of Canaan. His worship was practiced throughout the world by various names, the same idea of God, the same false idea, the same system of idolatry which began in ancient times shortly after the flood, much of it probably carried over from the flood. But God goes on to say in Hosea, this is Hosea chapter 2, beginning verse 8, if I didn't mention that. Hosea 2 and verse 8. And going on here, it says, Therefore I will return and take away my grain in its time and my new wine in its season, and I will take back my wool and my linen, given to cover her nakedness. Now I will uncover her lewdness in the sight of her lovers, 
No one shall deliver her from my hand. I will also cause, cause all her mirth to cease, her feast days, her new moons, her Sabbaths, and all her appointed feasts. By the way, these are generally speaking not God's feasts, unfortunately. But it uh, goes on to say, I will destroy her vines and her fig trees, which she has said, these are my wages that my lovers have given me. So I will make them a forest. He's speaking here of the vines and the fig trees being made a forest. In other words, the productive orchards and vineyards, not necessarily limited to wine, grapes, and fig trees, but it could include other types of productive fruit and vines and bushes as well. It says, I will make them a forest. Now, the Hebrew word there is a word that can mean a copse of bushes. In other words, a thicket of brush and wild overgrowth instead of cultivated vegetation. And the beasts of the field shall eat them. I will punish her for the days of the Baals to which she burned incense. She decked herself with her earrings, jewelry, and went after her lovers, speaking false gods, and, and the nations, the Gentile nations that she consorted with. But me she forgot, says the Lord. But me she forgot. Is it any accident that recent decisions by courts of our land have forbidden Bible reading in schools, forbidden prayer in schools, and greatly restricted public worship of God or anything resembling in any, uh, to any degree the God of the Bible. Is it any wonder that political parties have abandoned use of the name of God in their statements and that many in our society today, many public figures despise God and the whole idea of the God of the Bible? what God's word teaches. It's scorned and ridiculed. The laws of God are cast aside and trampled underfoot, even by many of the churches, if not most of them. Going on, it says, beginning with verse 1 of chapter 8 of Hosea, Hosea 8 and verse 1, set the trumpet to your mouth, he's saying to the prophet. He shall come like an eagle against the house of the Lord, the house of the Lord here being the nation that, that had uh, entered into that covenant, because they have transgressed my covenant and rebelled against my law. Israel will cry to me, My God, we know you. Israel has rejected the good. The enemy will pursue him. Yes, there will people who will be crying out to God when the, 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 the uh, calamities begin to occur in ways that they uh, will not expect, most likely. And they will be calling on God's name, but as we see, God's not going to hear them, at least not for a while, because of their rebellion. He says, Israel has rejected the good. They claim to know God, but they have rejected the good. The enemy will pursue him. They set up kings, but not by me. They made princes, but I did not acknowledge them. From their silver and gold, they made idols for themselves that they might be cut off. Your calf is rejected, O Samaria. Now, Samaria was the capital of ancient Israel, the, the ten-tribe nation of Israel. As you might remember, after the death of Solomon, there was a civil war 
in Israel, which had been a united kingdom under David and Solomon. And from that war emerged two different nations, one of them called Israel, which consisted of the ten tribes to the northern part of what had been the united nation of Israel, and the nation of Judah, which consisted of the remaining tribes of Israel to the south. And so the there was Israel, which had its capital in Samaria, and Judah, which had its capital in Jerusalem. This message is primarily to Israel, the northern tribes, which later were taken into captivity by the Assyrians and migrated westward. But it is not only to the ancient nation, it's to the modern peoples who have descended from them, as we'll see. But it says, Oh, Samaria, your calf is rejected. The calf is a reference to the false apostate worship of the Israelites who worshipped an image of Baal represented as a calf. And they called it by God's name, Yahweh. They claimed to be worshipping Yahweh, but it was in the form of a calf, which was idolatry, contrary to God's command. And they'd done the same thing in the wilderness when they came out of Egypt shortly, well, even as as, uh, God had spoken his laws to them from Mount Sinai, Moses went up into the mountain to receive the tablets of the law. The people made an idol of gold in the form of a calf and worshipped it and called it Yahweh. Claimed it was the God that brought them out of Egypt. And they were doing the same thing later on and in principle. This, these traditions have continued in various ways. It says they made idols for themselves that they might be cut off just as they had done in the wilderness. This false worship is inherent in many of the popular customs and traditions of our day to day. So God says, my anger is aroused against them. How long until they attain to innocence? For from Israel, even as this, a workman made it, speaking of the idols, and not God, that the calf of Samaria shall be broken in pieces. The idea is that God is going to put an end to the worship, the idolatrous worship of Israel, and for that matter, the nations. And he goes on to say, in doing these things, that they sow the wind and reap the whirlwind. The stalk has no bud, it shall never produce meal. If it should produce, aliens would swallow it up. And then in verse 11, it goes on with the prophecy, because Ephraim, now Ephraim was the leading tribe among the ten tribes of Israel. So a lot of times in the Bible, when it speaks of Ephraim, it is speaking of the entire nation of Israel. In principle, Ephraim being the leader of the leading tribe in various ways of the nation of Israel, which, as as I said, consisted of ten of the twelve tribes, or thirteen tribes, actually. Because Ephraim has made many altars for sin, they have become for him altars for sinning. I have written for him the great things of my law, that they were considered a strange thing. Now notice what God is saying. He's saying that he gave them his law, that that law is considered a strange thing. 
And so in our nations today, the laws of God are considered strange things and are to a very large extent reviled and rejected, even by those who claim to be Christians in many cases. For the sacrifices of my offerings, they sacrifice flesh and eat it, but the Lord does not accept them. In other words, they go to go to church, they claim to worship God and maybe give offerings and so forth, but God rejects impure worship. And it says he will remember their iniquity and punish their sins, and they shall return to Egypt. For Israel has forgotten his maker. Israel has forgotten his maker and has built temples. Now the Greek or the Hebrew word here translated temples in the King James and New King James Version is Haikal and its basic meaning is large buildings. Large buildings. It could apply to entertainment facilities as well as to large places for public worship. And so we have those kinds of Facilities all over our countries, but they are monuments to, in many cases, to our rejection of God and his worship. It says Judah, the, of, the, of the nation of Judah, also has multiplied fortified cities, but I will send fire upon his cities and it shall devour his palaces. Now notice the prophecy says that Israel will return to Egypt. Israel was not sent back into Egypt in the 8th century captivity at the hand of the Assyrians. And they were rather transported northward in the opposite direction. But other prophecies indicate that at the end time captivity of the Israelites, they will be sent to numerous places, including Egypt. So we see that this prophecy applies to our time today very clearly, not just to the ancient people of Israel. What we're told is that after Jesus Christ returns, he will set his hand to recover the remnant of Israel from where they have been taken captive. That is, those people who are left alive. Christ will set his hand to recover them. And it says in Isaiah 11, verse 11, Isaiah 11, verse 11, he shall come to pass in that day, and that is the time when, after Jesus Christ has returned in this case, that the Lord shall set his hand again the second time to recover the remnant of his people who are left from Assyria and Egypt, from Assyria and Egypt, from Pathras and Cush, from Elam and Shinar, from Hamath and the islands of the sea. He will set up a banner for the nations and will assemble the outcasts of Israel and gather together the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. This is an end-time captivity that's speaking of, one that will occur very near the end of this age. And the primary victims of that that uh, captivity will be the peoples of Israel and Judah. As the prophesied calamity strike our nations, the people will cry out to God, as we saw there. But because they have refused to hear him, he will refuse to hear them. This is repeated over in Zechariah chapter 7, beginning in verse 8. Zechariah 7 and verse 8. Then the word of the Lord came to Zechariah, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, execute true justice, show mercy and compassion, everyone to his brother. Do not oppress the widow, or the fatherless, the alien, or the poor. 
Let none of you plan evil in his heart against his brother. That's what God tells us in his word. But it says they refused to heed, shrug their shoulders, stopped their ears so that they could not hear. Yes, they made their hearts like flint, refusing to hear the law and the words which the Lord of hosts had sent by his spirit through his prophets. Thus great wrath came from the Lord of hosts. Therefore it happened that just as he proclaimed, and they would not hear, so they called out and would not listen, says the Lord of hosts. This is a prophecy for the future, even though it's put in the past tense, as prophecies often are in the scriptures. The words are placed in the past tense, even though they are future, not always, but quite often. But it tells us that as the people cry out to God in their in their time of distress and calamity, they'll begin to maybe think about God for the first time in a long time for many of them. But God's not going to hear those pleas and cries. Eventually he will, but not till the time of punishment is, has been accomplished. So these are not pleasant things to talk about or think about, but in the face of all this, God is gracious and exceedingly merciful. In fact, even his punishment is done in mercy and for the long-term benefit of the people. As Paul pointed out, if, if God were not a loving God, then he would not punish us. But a loving God is going to correct us when we need it for our sake and our benefit. And the scriptures tell us in many ways that God is gracious and exceedingly merciful. And what God has torn, he will heal. What he has taken away, he can and will restore. So we read in Hosea chapter 2, and if you go through the prophecies of the Bible, you'll see that this contrast appears in nearly all of the prophecies. Where it speaks of punishment, it also speaks of redemption. and. In Hosea 2 and verse 14, Hosea 2 and verse 14, it says, Therefore, behold, I will allure her, speaking of Israel, I will bring her into the wilderness and speak, speak comfort to her. I will give her vineyards from there in the valley of Achor is the a door of hope. She shall sing there as in the days of her youth, as in the day when she came from the land of Egypt. And it shall be in that day, says the Lord, that you will call me my husband, and no longer call me my master. For I will take from her mouth the names of the Baals, the idols, and they shall be remembered by their name no more. And that day I will make a covenant for them with the beasts of the field, with the birds of the air, and with the creeping things of the ground. Bow and sword of battle I will shatter from the earth. To make them lie down safely, I will betroth you to me forever. In other words, this is a metaphor for marriage. God is going to enter into a covenant relationship, a sort of marriage covenant, if you want to put it in those terms. And the Bible uses that metaphor for the relationship that will exist between his people and himself in the future. But just as the old covenant was, was referred to in the same terms during its era, I will betroth you to me forever, yes, I will you to me in righteousness and justice in loving kindness and mercy I will betroth you to me in faithfulness and you shall know the Lord. It shall come to pass in that day that I will answer says the Lord. So even though it's going to take a while eventually God is going to answer the prayers and pleas for mercy 
And I will answer the heavens, and they shall answer the earth. The earth shall answer with grain, with new wine, and with oil. And they shall answer Jezreel. Then I will sow her for myself in the earth. And I will have mercy on her who had not obtained mercy. Then I will say to those who were not my people, because God will have, figuratively speaking, rejected Israel for a short time. And he, he will say to those who were not my people, you are my people. And they will say, you are my God. Amidst all the clamor and confusion, all the chaos and destruction that we've seen and will see, there is a divine purpose being worked out. It may not be obvious to us. It's not obvious to most people, certainly. And one has to look hard and understand the scriptures to see it. But there is a purpose being worked out, even in the midst of the chaos of World War II. Winston Churchill, the, the Prime Minister of Great Britain at the time, said, quote, He must indeed have a blind soul who cannot see that some great purpose and design is being worked out here below. Quote. Now, he saw that some purpose was being worked out. He didn't know what that purpose was, really, at least not in any clear way. But we're privileged to know what that purpose is, or at least we can find out what it is. Because scripture tells us what it is. And it's very important that we keep our eye on the big picture. Through all these calamities, no matter what happens, we must keep our eyes fixed on the big picture and not let our immediate circumstances deter us from our spiritual goal. Now, that's not going to be easy when we're seeing things fall down around our ears. But we're going to have to keep in mind the big picture and the long-term goal and why we exist, why we're alive, what our, what our purpose is. That will be a great challenge. And that's going to be one of the challenges that we will face. We face now in many ways, but it may be more difficult to face in such times as we're speaking of. Another challenge, the second challenge I want to discuss today is that of living the way of love as the world around us dissolves into chaos. Now, love is not just a warm feeling. It's not just an emotion. Godly love is far deeper than that, and it is manifested in deeds. That doesn't mean there's not an emotional component to it sometimes, but ultimately, godly love is manifested in deeds. We read in Matthew chapter 24, beginning with verse 7 of the times to come. Matthew 24 and verse 7, For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines, pestilences, earthquakes in various places. These are the beginning of sorrows. Now, some of these things have been going on almost from the beginning of man's history. So, because we see war breaking out somewhere, our famine does not of an, in and of itself tell us that we're at the end of the age, but that combined with other factors can tell us. It says, then they will deliver you up to tribulation and kill you. You will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. This actually began happening in the apostolic era where 
virtually all of the apostles, if not every one, was martyred. Only exception might be John, according to the records that have been preserved. It's not clear whether he was martyred or not. It is clear that they tried to kill him at least once. But many others have been killed down through the centuries. Others who were faithful to Christ, who, who sought to live according to the scriptures. But these trends last up right up to the end of this age. We're told in the book of Revelation that there will be other martyrs right at the end, just, just prior to Christ's second coming. It goes on to say in Matthew 24 that there will then many false prophets will rise up and deceive many. That's also been happening for many centuries. Because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold, it says. But he who endures to the end will be saved. As we grow closer to the end of this age, lawlessness will abound more and more. Other prophecies tell us that. And as a result, the love of many will grow cold. Those who have the love in them to begin with, love can't grow cold if it's not there already. But the love of many, and that includes many evidently who are in the church of God, or who claim to be in the church, who are associated with the church, will grow cold. But he who endures, it says, to the end will be saved. And the gospel of his kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations, and then the end will come. So the gospel is going to be proclaimed to the world, and it is being proclaimed now, has been for some years, but we're told that before the end comes, that gospel must go out to all the world. And it is going out to nations all over the world through the Internet and other venues, other means of communication. But as trouble increases, some will turn aside. Some will betray their brethren, as is implied here. They will turn on one another and hate one another. We can draw some lessons and examples of that from the Holocaust of World War II. Stella Goldschlag was a very attractive German-Jewish woman who collaborated with the Gestapo to betray other Jews during the Nazi era. Using seduction and ruthlessness, she betrayed Jews living underground in Berlin during the war, exposing them so they could be arrested and murdered by the Nazis. In one weekend alone, she helped the Gestapo catch 62 Jews. In return, she received money, good food, and a temporary reprieve from deportation for her parents. But while Stella Goldschlag and some other Jews were collaborating with the enemy to betray their own people, other Jews were giving their lives in sacrifice to save their fellow Jews. Among them was Harry Blumenfrucht, who endured two weeks of Nazi torture, refusing to name his co-conspirators in a, a scheme to acquire weapons to fight the Germans. His agony ended only when he finally died by hanging. As another example of heroic action, the Jewish council members in Bilgaraj, Poland, chose to be executed rather than compile a list of candidates for deportation. This was something that uh, was done by the Nazis in Poland in particular. They required the 
Jewish leaders to give them lists of names of people to take off to the death camps. In this particular location, the council refuses to co cooperate, and they were murdered. While the Pope was ignoring or abetting the persecution of Jews, and many other European Catholics were actively persecuting and murdering Jews, a few gave their own lives to condemn the atrocities or raise their voices to save Jews. Bernard Lichtenberg, a German Catholic priest, publicly protested Nazi persecution of Jews. He was arrested, spent two years in prison, and after being released, was arrested again. He died en route to internment in the Dachau concentration camp. While German Catholic Archbishop Conrad Grover blamed Jews for the death of Jesus and was proclaiming that their annihilation was justified and a self-imposed curse, Angelo Roncalli, who later became Pope John XXIII, provided baptismal certificates for Jews in hiding and made appeals armed at saving Jewish lives. A Belgian priest named Bruno was among a relatively small number of Catholic priests and nuns in Europe who risked their lives to save Jews during the Holocaust. While the U.S. government, led by the State Department, was actively blocking the immigration of Jews to the United States, their own fellow Israelites, out of hate and prejudice, denying them a sanctuary which could have saved many of their lives. Gentile people here in this country and other places scattered throughout Europe risked their lives and sometimes even gave up their lives to to save the lives of Jews. Some were farmers, some businessmen, townspeople, church leaders, even at least one German soldier, probably more than one that we don't know about. Few, if any, of these people were actually truly converted to biblical Christianity, but they testified with their conduct that they at least some understanding of what love is from the standpoint of Scripture. They may not have even thought of it in that way, but maybe they did. The question for us, though, is what will we do? What will you and I do when we are faced with life and death decisions? Will we stand fast? Will we take the easy route and betray our friends and brothers? A lot of it depends on what we're doing now and the decisions that we're making now and how we're living our lives today, tomorrow, and the next day. We're told in John chapter, 1 John chapter 3 that we are to love in deed and in truth. As I said, love is not just a feeling. It is what you do. We're told to love in deed and in truth. 1 John chapter 3, verse 15 First John 3, beginning verse 15, Whoever hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love, because he laid down his life for us. And we also ought to lay down our lives for our brethren. But whoever has this world's goods and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? My little children, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. In other words, not love only in word or tongue. That doesn't mean it's wrong to express love 
in that manner, but it should go deeper than that. We should show love by our deeds, our actions. James 2, beginning with verse 14, tells us that faith without works is dead. James 2, verse 14, What does it profit, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can faith save him if a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food? And one of you says to him, Depart in peace, be warmed and filled, but you do not give him the things which are needed for the body. What does it profit? Thus also faith, if it does not have works, is dead. Now there are many who claim to be Christians who teach against works and tell us that somehow doing works is contrary to what the scriptures tell us, the exact opposite is the truth. Because works without or faith without works, just saying you have faith, but but living a different way is simply living a lie. But if we say we have faith in God, then we need to practice godly Christianity. And that includes sharing with those who are in genuine need and have nothing. It says one who is destitute of food and clothing. If you see somebody in that state and you have a way of helping them, then it's your responsibility to help them. Again, if you have the means and the, the opportunity. Luke 3 and verse 8. Luke 3 and verse 8. Therefore bear fruits worthy of repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham for our father. For I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. And even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Every tree, he said, that does not bear good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. So the people asked him, saying, What shall we do then? What shall we do? Notice they said, What shall we do? Now, what did Jesus say? Did he say, well, you don't need to do anything because God is going to save you if you just make a profession of, of believing. So you don't really need to do anything. Is that what Jesus said? No, he said, he who has two tunics, let him give to one who has none. And he who has food, let him do likewise. There may come a time when our neighbors, people we know, even other people in the church don't have food. And Again, where we have the opportunity, we will be expected to help the opportunity and means. We're told that we are to help one another. Help goes both directions. We're to help and give to each other. Matthew 25, verse 31, When the Son of Man comes in his glory, and all the holy angels with him, then he will sit on the throne of his glory. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate the one from another as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats, and he will set the sheep on the right hand but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right hand, Come, you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you took me in. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you a stranger and take you in or naked and clothe you? Or when did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? And the king will answer and say to them, As surely I say to you as much as you 
did it to one of the least of these my brethren, you did it to me. Then he will also say to those on the left hand, Depart from me, you cursed, into the everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. By the way, everlasting means simply uh, last for an era, an age. It doesn't mean for eternity. And it goes on to say, For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not take me in naked and you did not clothe me sick and in prison. You did not visit me. Then they also will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them saying, Assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did not do it to one of these, least of these, my brethren, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into everlasting or age-lasting punishment. In other words, they're going to be cast into the lake of fire and burned up, but the righteous into eternal life. We see an example in Scripture of how the Scripture might be fulfilled in a time of famine at the time during the apostolic era. The disciples sent relief to the brethren who were starving. There was a severe famine. And it says in Acts 11, beginning verse 27, these days prophets came to, from Jerusalem to Antioch. Then one of them named Agabus stood up and showed by the Spirit that there was going to be a great famine throughout all the world, which also happened in the days of Claudius Caesar. Then the disciples, each according to his ability, determined to send relief to the brethren dwelling in Judea. This they also did and sent it by, to the elders by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. So. Here was a famine that evidently was widely spread, it says worldwide throughout all the world, but evidently it was more severe in some areas than in others, and especially severe in Judea. And so others in other parts of the world at that time, and in particular here speaking of Asia Minor and Greece, they sent relief to the brethren in Judea by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. Now keep in mind that this was a real crisis. This wasn't just a bunch of loafers and freeloaders looking for a handout because they were too lazy to work, as we have in many places in this country and other places around the world. I've been accosted many times, many times over by people coming up and asking for money. And uh, if one is aware of what's actually occurring. It's clear that their need is artificial. It's a way of avoiding their own responsibilities. So we can't just hand out whatever we have to anybody who decides they want it. We have people like that in this country and other places, and I'm sure you're familiar with that. And God does expect us to provide for ourselves to the extent that we're able. But in a time of genuine crisis, of special need, we must be willing to share what we have. And we will come to face times like that. And there will be times when there will be people that need, desperately need help, such as in a crisis like a hurricane or a flood or some natural disaster or other kinds of disasters or famines, plagues, and so forth. And then there may be just 
situations where you know of people who have fallen on hard times, not necessarily through any fault of their own, who, who need a, a help, to, uh, need a helpful hand. We help as the need exists and as we have opportunity and ability. Second Corinthians eight one says. Second Corinthians eight and verse one. Moreover, brethren, we make known to you the grace of God bestowed on the churches of Macedonia that in a great trial of affliction the abundance of their joy and their deep poverty abounded in the riches of their liberality. For I bear witness that according to their ability, yes, and beyond their ability, they were freely willing, imploring us with much urgency that we should receive the gift and the fellowship of the ministry to the saints. And not only as we had hoped, but they first gave themselves to the Lord and then to us by the will of God. So they gave it according to their ability and then in this case beyond their ability. We're not necessarily expected to give beyond our ability, but we should have a mind willing to give as we are able when the need exists. Going on in verse 12 of Second Corinthians 8, it says, where if there is first a willing mind, it is accepted according to what one has, not according to what one does not have. For I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but by an equality that now at this time your abundance may supply their lack. At this time, a period of extreme distress and emergency, that their abundance also may supply your lack may be a quality as it is written he who gathered much had nothing left over and he who gathered little had no lack now that's, that's not a formula for a socialist economy that is speaking of a time of severe trial and distress where people share with one another to supply one another's most basic needs and we may face such crises before the end of this age Meanwhile, we have to learn to be generous, giving with what we have been blessed. And in a time of crisis, we may have to learn to share in ways that we're not used to. But now we need to develop an attitude of sacrifice and giving, especially in sacrificing to help others to come to an understanding of the truth. This work is a work of sacrifice, and it is a work of making an effort to give people understanding which they lack an opportunity to have understanding, to share what we have with them. And some of us may not have much money or much in the way of material goods to share, but each of us can use his own talents and abilities, not only to provide for himself and his family, which is our duty, but also to consider the needs of others, especially in times of trial and difficulty, and also in order to set a right example and showing a willingness that we are of a mind to give to others in an appropriate way when opportunity arises. And even the poorest of us can fervently pray for the needs of others if that's all we can do. We can pray for others, be mindful of their needs, and also pray for the gospel. Pray that God will open doors for the gospel to go out in power to the world so that everyone have access to a knowledge of the truth. Even in times of crisis, we will have things to be thankful for, and we'll, we need to be mindful of that 
And if we know and are practicing the truth of God's word, we will have things to be thankful for. If nothing else, we will have God. We will have one another. And we also will have a clear path into the future charted out for us in Scripture. And so let's follow that path with resolve all the way to the end.